How's it going, A's fans, and welcome to episode 40 of the Locked On A's podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, noted baseball fan, Jason Burke, and today we're going to continue our series on They Were A's. Um, this one is kind of bending the rules a little bit because uh, this person was a famous baseball player, but then uh, he, he was later a coach for the A's, and I'll explain why I feel like that's important because I feel like he contributed to uh, some world championship teams even though he was not playing for the team. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, this book that I got, explaining why he was important. And then, uh, yeah, I'm going to probably, if we have time, I will go on a rant about what is going on in baseball right now. So uh, we got that to look forward to. Um, if you do not already, please follow us on social media at Locked On A's on Twitter and Instagram. I am at ByJasonB on Twitter. And then uh, if you have mailbag questions for us, you can mail them in to us at LockedOnAthletics at gmail.com. So that's all that. Uh, Let's get into this. So today we are going to talk about Jilton Joe DiMaggio. Uh, He was a uh, coach for the A's in their first two seasons in Oakland. So uh, 1968 and 1969, Uh, Joe DiMaggio was also born in Martinez. He played, you know, uh, minor league ball in San Francisco, I believe. So he was an area kid, which is why he likely decided to become a coach with the Oakland A's. Um, So that's all that. Just a little bit on Joe DiMaggio, just in case you're unfamiliar with Jolton Joe, uh, you know, the Yankees clipper. Uh, He was one of the best of all time. Uh, He's, Easily in the Hall of Fame. He played 13 seasons with the Yankees. He was a 13-time All-Star. And he took three years off in his prime. I think it was like age 27 to 30 or 28 to 31, something like that, to go serve in World War II. So, uh, you know, he could have had three more dominant seasons if he wanted to. But he was like, yeah, you know what? There's there's this jerk over across the seas. I'm going to go deal with that stuff. So, good job, Joe DiMaggio. His most notable uh, achievement would probably be his 50 game hit, uh, 56 game hit streak. Sorry, uh, and for my money, that's the record that will never be broken in Major League Baseball history. Uh, for personal records, there's like 300 wins and stuff like that, and that's just that the game has changed. But a uh, 56 game hit streak, that there's no way that happens. There's an incredible amount of luck that goes into that. If somebody gets to 40, I feel like that's an amazing feat at this time. Um, and ball's got to fall in. You got to get like a call here and there. Uh, that's it's never going down. So congratulations to all-time uh, consecutive hit leader Joe DiMaggio. That record will last literally forever. Um, so according to Baseball Reference, his WAR total was 79.1 over 13 seasons. And while you know Barry Bonds had like 162 and or something like that, and he was you know way up at the top of the list. He also played 22 seasons, so on a per-season basis, he was like a win better than Joe DiMaggio. Uh, Just to put this in perspective a little bit, that's 79.1 over 13 seasons. Uh, Pete Rose had Uh, 79.7 wins above replacement in 24 seasons. So he basically packed Pete Rose's career into nine fewer years, which is, oh sorry, no, 11 fewer years. And uh, that's ridiculous if you know anything about Pete Rose being the all-time hit king. Even if he's if he's not in the Hall of Fame, that still counts, I think. Uh, you, we can debate on whether or not Ichiro is the actual all-time hit king. But uh, while I would like it to be Ichiro instead, I think that because it was all in the same you know major league, uh, that counts for Pete Rose in his favor. 
uh, as much as I hate to admit that. Okay, so let's get back on topic here. Um, so we're talking about Joe DiMaggio, and there's this book called Dynastic Bombastic Fantastic. It is basically covering the A's of the early 70s and their you know, back-to-back-to-back world championships from uh, 72 to 74, and how that team came into place and then how they were dismantled later on and all that stuff. Uh, it's a fantastic read. If you have time, uh, go ahead and pick it up. It's probably a little bit cheaper than you know it was when it came out. So uh, yeah, g- give it a read. Check it out on you know yeah from your local bookstore or whatever like that. And uh, yeah, it, it's bright green and gold, and it's by uh, Jason Turbo, uh, not spelled like you know Turbo, but uh, Turbo, uh, T U R B O W, Turbo. I'm gonna still say Turbo. So I'm gonna read a few paragraphs here because it sets up everything. Uh, for context, they are in the 1972 World Series. And this is talking about Joe Rudy's famous catch. If you're unfamiliar with the catch, I will link it to it in the show notes so you can watch the YouTube clip. Or if you're nostalgic for the 1972 World Series, I will link to it in the show notes and you can watch it again. Um, so this is all linking back to Joe DiMaggio. So uh, here we go. Uh, Mankey turned sharply on the right on the righty's first pitch, blasting the ball on a high arc toward the 12-foot-high wall in, center, in left field. It was without question the team's best struck ball of the night. Joe Rohde, playing in, spun and sprinted directly toward the fence, back to the infield. He tracked the ball over his right shoulder, battling the sun, as broadcaster Kurt Gowdy called it on NBC's broadcast. There's a long drive to left. That ball's going, going. It wasn't so different, really, from the March day four years earlier in for four years earlier in Mesa when Rudy, then a 24-year-old first baseman, was trying desperately to make the A's big league roster out of spring training as an outfielder. New manager Bob Kennedy, sizing him up as a personal project, drilled him incessantly in the Arizona sunshine of 1968, shooting balls out of an air cannon toward left field, horse-side, uh, sorry, horse-side mortar fire that gained elevation so quickly that Rudy could barely track it. Luckily for him, page turning, there was somebody nearby to urge him along, offering instruction every step of the way. As it happened, that person also happened to know, know a thing or two. Go back on that one. Back! Joe DiMaggio yelled as Rudy broke the wrong way, then failed to compensate for lost ground. Turn the other way. Turn the other way. Over and over, they ran the drill, Rudy sprinting backward toward balls angled behind him. DiMaggio, in his first of two seasons spent as the de facto coach in Oakland, steps away from the awestruck kid, telling him exactly what to do. Adjust your stride at the warning track, DiMaggio was saying. Feel for the fence. His instruction was incessant, as, w- as was the drill, which occurred daily from uh, the en- through the end of spring training and again when Rudy was called up to Oakland that May. Every day for the rest of the 1968 season, the three men arrived at the ballpark early for a half an hour of instruction, Kennedy hitting, Rudy chasing ball- baseballs, and the smoothest center fielder in the history of the sport trying to coax the youngster and becoming better at his job. DiMaggio's lessons began to take. Balls that at first landed 50 feet away from Rudy were less distant, and then within arm's reach, and then they were inside his glove. By 1972, he'd built himself into an all-star defender, the best said many in all the sport. And now here he was again, chasing another ball hit over his head. This time it was hit off the bat of Dennis Menke uh, into the far reaches of Riverfront Stadium. DiMaggio wasn't even in the building. When when Mankey made contact, the 53,244 fans in attendance exploded, but Rudy didn't notice. 
He was running calculations in his head, tracking the hook just like he'd been taught. He spun right, ran like hell, uh, then turned again the other way. He flipped down his sunglasses, made a late adjustment to his angle without breaking stride, and stuck out his hand to feel for the wall exactly as Damasio had showed him. He waited for a beat, then put everything he had into his leap, extending his long body as far as it could stretch, back arched, legs curving behind him, reaching up backhanded. On the mound, Hunter thought the ball was gone, and the bullpen Raleigh Fingers thought the ball was gone. Throughout the grandstand, throngs of Reds fans voiceforcefully agreed. Oh no, Bando thought as the ball was hit. Oh yes, he cried when he saw what Rudy was doing. And that's where I'll leave that because this is a podcast and I don't want to read an entire book to you guys. But uh, if you haven't seen the play, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but uh, the A's did win the series, so I guess I just kind of did. Um, It's a great play in A's history, especially Oakland A's history. Um, So check out the link in the show notes and, uh, you know, have a look. It'll be fun. Um, so the reason why I am talking about Joe DiMaggio today is, uh, you know, there, there are pictures of him wearing green and gold. And when I first saw those years ago, I thought that it was like a novelty thing. And I was like, oh, that's really silly. He's much older than he was when he was playing. But, uh, you know, after reading that part of the book and all that, uh, you realize that he was actually a very influential coach. Uh, and just that right there could have won the 1972 World Series for the A's. Just that little bit of teaching. And I know that Joe Rudy put in a lot of effort as well. But uh, for me, it it strikes a chord with how Ron Washington worked tirelessly with Marcus Semien, who now, like Joe Rudy, is one of the best in the game at what he does. Uh, he was nom- Marcus Semien this is, was nominated for the Gold Glove last year. Uh, he did not win, but, you know, he, he's made some huge strides. Uh, if you've heard some of the crossover podcasts we've done with other locked on hosts, they're like, when did he get this good at defense? This is ridiculous. So it's just the amount of effort and the, you know, the quality of the coaching. And that's why uh, I felt like Joe DiMaggio needed a shout out for his time with the, uh, the green and gold. So uh, that's going to be it for the Joe DiMaggio's part of this. And uh, we're going to take a little break. And on the other end of this, I'm going to do a little rant on major league baseball owners. Do you hate stepping on the scale? Maybe it's because you haven't met the right one. A company called Withings produced the world's first smart scale, and they are still the best. In fact, Tom's Guide rated Withings Body Plus the best overall smart scale 2020. If you're looking to lose weight, willpower is key, but so is having the right tools. Withings smart scales are known for durability and an exceptional user-friendly design. Step on and data from every weigh-in syncs automatically to the free app for iOS and Android via Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Lots of smart scales don't have the Wi-Fi option, and it means you need to have your phone on you. But with Withings Body Plus, yeah, it gives you weight, full body composition, weight trend, even a local weather report. The scale can support up to eight users and even know who is who. So here's the deal. You can get 25% off a Withings Body Plus right now at withings.com for a very limited time. Go to withings.com, W-I-T-H-I-N-G-S dot com, backslash MLB to get 25% off Body Plus Body Composition Scale. That's W-I-T-H-I-N-G-S dot com backslash MLB to get 25% off Body Plus Body Composition Scale. So here's my thing with MLB owners right now, and owners of any sport, but Major League Baseball is the team that we, uh, we're covering, and they also seem to be lagging a little bit. Um, there was a little bit of a fun that went around for 
ballpark employees. Uh, each team donated a million dollars so that uh, they could be paid, and that's wonderful. Nice step. A million dollars is a drop in the bucket to these guys. It's fine. Um, but my whole thing is, like, the players don't know if they're going to be getting paid their salaries because they don't know. You know, we don't know how long the season is going to be or any of that stuff. So, obviously, there's some contention there, and once that gets figured out, maybe we'll figure out, you know, how salaries work. And I'm just using Mookie Betts as an example here uh, because he's obvious, and people are generally aware of how much he's making, which is $27 million in uh, 2020. Obviously, uh, I don't know that the Dodgers should be paying him his full salary if there's going to be a half season, but they should start paying him some amount of money when the season was set to begin or whenever the paychecks were supposed to start rolling in. And that goes across the board for everybody. Mookie Betts will be fine because $27 million, even if it's on half, he's doing okay. But like the minor league players, they don't know, and they're not making much money anyway. But if they're, if they have to stay in shape and do all these other things for the team, but then also not get any money from the team, uh, then how are they supposed to keep being ready to play minor league baseball and hopefully make a career out of this and chase that dream? If they need to still put money on the or food on the table for uh, their families and stuff, um, this go I mean, to a lesser degree also the guys that are making minor league, or major league minimums in the big leagues, uh, the A's have a numerous amount of those guys. Um, and you know, I know that $600,000 or whatever it is right now. I mean, it's a decent amount of money and more than most of us probably make, but, uh, you know, you kind of adjust your lifestyle to how much money you make. And if somebody's banking on making, you know, if I'm banking on making, you know, a certain amount in a month, then I'm like, Oh, I, I can spend like this $20 on a shirt or whatever. And, uh, they probably do that just more extravagantly. Um, and I'm not here to like necessarily be here on behalf of the players, although they would benefit. And I do feel like the players should be compensated at this time uh, because the owners have way more money than any of the players do. And I think that that's where I get a little bit agitated with how they're doing everything. Because uh, in what business do you buy or like start a business or acquire a business or anything like that? Where no matter what, you just are protected and you're just supposed to, you know, always have a profit. Uh, and even if you take, you know, a year or two of loss, the owners can sell the team if they want to and make millions of dollars more than whatever they paid for it. So it's not like they're ever going to lose money on the investment. Uh, so maybe they could just front the few million dollars for these minor leaguers that might be homeless if they don't start getting money or working odd jobs and then losing out on potential mil millions of dollars because, you know, of a lost season right now uh, in future contracts and all that stuff. Uh, the owners are just going to probably end up saving a ton of money because you got like, uh, just in the A circumstance, you got Matt Olson who, if he had hit the Ryan uh, Ryan Howard milestone homers before hitting our arbitration, I think it was 125. I mentioned it uh, a couple episodes back. If he had hit like 125 homers before hitting arbitration, then that would be like a milestone, and he would probably be entitled to more money because of that. And if they're playing half a season or less, then uh, he's not going to hit that milestone more than likely. And that costs him lots of money. So 
the owners are just benefiting from the shorter season no matter what. They might get these players for an extra year of control, which I also think is bullshit. Um, because the players are still aging. And when they do hit free agency, they're going to, one, have to wait an extra year. And then, two, get paid less for it. So uh, they, they, the owners should definitely have to front the money right now. Or sell their friggin' teams. Because they're going to get their money no matter what. They don't need to make billions of dollars. They can just make like a, a bunch of millions. A bunch of millions is still a lot of friggin' money. So I guess my point is, if you don't want to do what's morally right for you know your employees at this point in time, then uh, sell the team to somebody who's going to do it. Because this is stupid and I don't like talking about uh, you know paying minor leaguers because that should just go without saying, I think. And just making sure that your employees are doing okay. Uh, that's just being a human being. So, uh, yeah, be, be human beings to each other, everybody. All right, that feels like a good place to just call it good with uh, this episode, uh, including Joe DiMaggio's, he was an A, uh, A's coach. And if you got some time to kill, tell your smart device to play the next episode of Locked On Fantasy Baseball. Uh, they, they're doing good work over there, getting you ready for whatever fantasy baseball might happen. Um, so yeah, that's going to be it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of he was an A, uh, haven't decided on which player I'm going with yet, but I've got a few options. So, uh, we're going to do that in the meantime, stay inside and celebrate good times, Oakland. And I will talk with you guys tomorrow.